Our guest tonight is uh, Ginetta Candelario. She is a professor of sociology and Latin America and Latino studies at Smith College. And we're going to talk about the situation of uh, immigrants from Haiti in the Dominican Republic. Ginetta, buenas noches. ¿Cómo estás? Bienvenida. Buenas noches, Raquel. Gracias por la invitación. Gracias. Un placer, como siempre. Ay, de igual manera, hace tiempo que no, no te teníamos por aquí, ¿verdad? Sí, de acuerdo. La última vez que estuvimos conversando fue cuando todavía estábamos en, en, en UMass, en, en, en la estación antigua. Uh -huh. Bueno, qué bueno tenerte por aquí ahora. Y bienvenida. Welcome once again. And we are going to talk about this uh, subject that is, uh, this topic that is so interesting. Now, um, just for a little background, um, you, were you born in the Dominican Republic? No, I was born in Brooklyn. Ah, okay. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but um, how, um, but do you do have uh, Dominican Republic roots? Roots? Yes, my mother's Dominican. My mother actually, uh, which is not an immigrant. She was an exile from the Dominican Republic because she left in 1960 during the Trujillato. So she really came as a political exile originally and then eventually came back as an immigrant post-Trujillo. Uh -huh. But have you been back and traveled back and forth to uh, the Dominican Republic? Yes, I spent the first five or six years of my childhood in the Dominican Republic and uh, spent most summers of my childhood there. And I also actually have gone on to become a scholar of the Dominican Republic. So I'm there two and three times a year, and I'll be living there next year for six months on a Fulbright Fellowship as oh well. Oh my goodness, great, mm -hmm. congratulations. Thank That's awesome, <laughs> awesome, awesome. Now, um, this mm -hmm. island, La Española, it, it, um, it has a peculiar situation. It's just an island, but it's shared by two countries, Haiti on the western side and the Dominican Republic on the eastern side. and and. Uh, when you were living in the Dominican Republic, did, did you experience any um, ideas or any talks, suggestions, uh, or did you hear anybody saying anything against the Haitians? Because it seems that that is the situation. Well, well, yeah, anti-Haitianism certainly has a long history in the Dominican Republic. In fact, we could say that in some ways the country was born of anti-Haitianism because the Dominican Republic was founded uh, in the immediate aftermath of unified Haiti. So it was a, it was a break from Haiti, actually. Um, but uh, as a child growing up, I don't recall being particularly conscious of anti-Haitianism. Really, the circumstance was more uh, the kind of political terror that Balaguer and his regime was actively fomenting in the DR when I was a child in the 1970s there. So really it was Balaguerismo that was the, the boogeyman, not so much anti-Haitianism at the time, at least you know, in my consciousness as a child. Mm. Well, uh, why don't we start with a little bit of history, uh, how this uh, sentiment of anti-Haitianism was born, because here it's presented as an immigrant uh, problem. However, it's something deeper than that. It seems that uh, uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> racism, you know, I hate mm -hmm. to use that word, but mm -hmm. it seems that racism is at the base of all these problems. Yeah. So uh, how did this whole thing start? 
Well, so the first thing is to remember, as you said, that it is an island that is shared by two countries. It was the those two countries themselves are a product of colonialism. The first was Spanish colonialism, which established Santo Domingo, which was its name until 1844, uh, and uh, then the French colonial powers in their effort to extend into the Americas following the Spanish example. Um, it's a long story, but basically established themselves first with pirates. So the film Pirates of the Caribbean, yeah. uh, you know, if there's a little bit of historical truth in that, really? is the fact that pirates really were critical agents of colonial powers in the Americas. Mm. And through buccaneers and corsairs and pirates, uh, France established a foothold in the western third of the island on the western side of the mountain range that divides the island. Uh, in six, in the 1600s, and eventually that became a formal colony of France, which was Saint Domingue. So you have Santo Domingo on the western side, and San, Saint Domingue on the excuse me, Saint Domingue on the eastern side, and Saint Domingue on the western side by the end of the 1600s, by 1697. Uh, and so for that 1700s, 18th century, you have the two colonies sharing the island, but really it's France and Saint Domingue that are if I hate to use this word because we're talking about a plantation slaveholding society, but that that is growing, uh, you know, apace to the extent that by the time the French Revolution happens in the end of the 18th century, uh, Saint Domingue is providing two thirds, seventy percent, eighty percent of the wealth of France of the French crown, the French estate. Um, so it was a very, very Profitable to use that term in and you know incredible history there. And is that a profit uh, strictly from sugarcane? Predominantly, Predominantly, yes. A large share of it is from mm -hmm. sugarcane and slave slaveries, right? So the enslavement of primarily West Africans on the French side. On the Spanish side, on the Santo Domingo side, right. there was still slavery. It was far less expansive and less intensive, and it was slavery not based on sugarcane plantations, but on cattle ranching, actually. Oh. And so the two economies were linked because the cattle ranching on the Spanish side literally fed the Plant, the sugarcane plantation for export economy on the French side, uh, as well as providing, of course, things like leather goods, etc. Um, so, so these two economies were very linked. They were both slave-based economies. They were both colonial economies, but but dramatically different in terms of demographics and in terms of the kind of wealth that they were generating. The Spanish side really was not wealthy at all. In fact, it was quite impoverished. Uh, at the time of the Haitian Revolution. But uh, at that time then, um, were they still working together? There was no tension at all? They, they, they were still friendly, in friendly terms, well, or no? Well, I mean, I think you could, I don't know about friendliness, because that implies a kind of goodwill, but they were absolutely linked. The two economies were, were absolutely totally linked. Um, the colonial masters, right, the slave masters on both sides certainly shared certain ideologies and political and economic interests in common, as did the enslaved people on both sides of the island, right? They shared uh, a kind of stake in resisting white supremacy and in um, freedom for enslaved Africans and black people on the island. Um, and in fact, there was a great deal of running away from the French part to the Spanish part, which had established Palenques and had a very large free black and mulatto population on the Spanish side. So. 
There absolutely is a long history of, of interaction, um, both in terms of sustaining systems of power and violence, but also in terms of systems of liberation, movements for liberation on both sides. So at what point is it that uh, this uh, animosity uh, starts? Well, Because it seems like that, you know, at the beginning, at least they were not like enemies either. Uh, how does that start? Yeah, I mean, I think the conflict, the conflict really is rooted in the colonial history. So France and Spain themselves were in conflict throughout the 18th century and the 19th century right. in terms of in Europe, but also, right. of course, then in their colonies because they're competing, right? They're competing for territory. They're competing for market share in, in what becomes capitalism and this kind of mercantilist raw material providing export agriculture because really that's what to remember. The Americas, whether it's the U.S. South and its cotton industry or the Caribbean, and it's sugarcane and and coffee and tobacco or Brazil and the gold mines or Peru and silver and so forth. It, it, all those our countries are doing in the Americas is providing raw materials exactly. for the industrial capitalism of, of Europe and then eventually of, of this part of the country, right, North, North America, northern, northeastern North America. Um, so that competition, you know, really clearly does affect the histories. But... Um, the Haitian Revolution and the abolition of slavery specifically, uh, so I should say that, that the first country to, the first territory, the first country to abolish slavery in the Americas was Haiti. And in fact, it was the Haitian revolutionaries, and in particular Toussaint Louverture, who abolished slavery on the Spanish part also, on January 1st, 1801. So the people who are today Dominicans really owe the abolition of slavery to a Haitian mm -hmm. revolutionary leader, not to a Spanish uh, you know, leader, not to Bolivar, but to Toussaint and the forces uh, on the Haitian side, on what becomes the Haitian side. The um, Haiti gets established in 1804 under Dessalines, who has a very storied and one could, I think, correctly say bloody history on the island, but that is the nature of revolution and ab abolishing slavery, right, in, in a colonial system that was deeply invested in holding on to its property, which was human beings. Exactly. Right? That's so, right. Yeah. <laughs> so um, the long story is that eventually Haiti is established in 1804. And eventually, as I was, I think, explaining to you the other day, uh, the whole island becomes unified Haiti in 1822. That, in part, is a product of Western powers, including the U.S., but especially France and Spain and England and so forth, refusing to recognize Haitian uh, liberation, Haitian freedom, the Haitian state as a, as a treaty-making entity that could engage in commerce and trade. So, as as I was uh, explaining, in 1822, Boyer, who was the first constitutionally elected president of Haiti, agrees with France to pay an indemnification of 24, I think the number is $24 million, to compensate the former enslavers for the loss of their property. That is to say, the people who liberated themselves and their descendants essentially were forced to pay for their freedom. So that required cash and gold stores that, that they just didn't have. And, and in part, that's what accounted for the move to unify the island into one country and to begin to do things like tax the holdings of the church in the Spanish part and to tax the cattle ranchers and the tobacco growers and the coffee growers in the Spanish part. There was a fair amount of support for that, actually, 
because the majority of the people were actually free blacks and mulatos uh, who were not property holders in that way. If anything, they were small-scale conuqueros, right, people who were subsistence farming. Um, and in fact, it was a bloodless unification. This was not an aggressive invasion, contrary to popular Dominican storytelling and historiography. Um, but eventually, the kinds of policies that Boyer and the unified Haitian government started instituting to, to pay that indemnification to France really did begin to create um, unsustainable friction on the Spanish part. And, and that's where the seeds of the birth of the Dominican Republic really are, are um, begin to, to bear fruit, because it was in that period, in the 1830s. I'm a little confused here. So mm -hmm. at this point, w when Boyer uh, is the uh, president of Haiti, is the whole island Haitian? It is. It, well, it's, it's Haiti. It's Haiti. It's, it's the, all, the whole island. The whole though. island is Haiti, and and yes, and people were speaking French and Spanish on both yeah. sides. Um, both languages, by the way, were the language of the state as well as of the nation. So it's really interesting when you look at the archives for the Haitian unification period. You really do see a bilingual, bicultural, multicultural country developing, yeah. so to speak. Right. Um, so there was not. There was not this sort of, uh, you know, instinctive or organic rejection of all things Haitian. That was not, in fact, the case. And where there was eventually rejection of the Haitian presence on the Spanish part, it was political, right? It wasn't racial, and it wasn't ideological. Mm. It was political. Mm -hmm. It was it was a rejection of the policies of the Haitian state. And then that and part of the the movement to organize. Um, an independence movement from Haiti did begin to deploy the language of culture. So, for example, saying things like, well, nosotros somos hispano, we're Spanish, y ellos son franceses, mm -hmm. and they're mm -hmm. French. Mm -hmm. Nosotros somos católicos, we're Catholic. And this is interesting, because Haitians are actually largely Catholic, but, but there was a framing of their Catholicism because, like Dominican Catholicism, by the way, it was incorporating Afro-African uh, cosmologies, right? So we have Dominican Vodou and Haitian Vodou. We have both, but there was this, you know, uh, claims making about Dominican Catholicism being closer to the institutionally approved <laughs> Roman Catholicism, yeah. right? Which is which is just inaccurate, right? But that was what was being said, so that people could rally around an idea of of ourselves as different from Haiti. But again, that was largely a political move. It was intended to to pr create a broad-based support for the idea of having a separate nation-state. Uh, and if that had been all it was, it probably would have been no different than every other nation-state project in the Americas. But because the two islands share a country, uh, uh, the two countries share an island. Because racialist discourse in the 19th century was really beginning to. Um, Articulate itself as being based in science as opposed to simply in culture, right? The the political conflict began to take on a racialist and then racializing cast by mm. the by the end of the nineteenth century. Uh, so you really begin to see what you could honestly call what you could legitimately call a kind of racial anti Haitianism beginning to develop at the end of the nineteenth century. Uh, but it's not until like Trujillo in 1931, in the 1930s, that anti-Haitianism becomes a full-blown, fully institutionalized 
ideology within infrastructure. We're going to talk a little bit more about that. My guest tonight is Geneta Candelario. She's a professor of sociology and Latin America and Latino studies at Smith Colleges. And we're talking about the situation and the origins of this um, problem that is going on between Haiti and the Dominican Republic in relation to the immigrants. So here comes uh, Trujillo. Now he... Um, there, there is a massacre that happens. I, mean, I think it was ordered by him it in was. which thousands of people were killed based only on racial elements. Tell me about that. Yes. So Trujillo comes into power in 19... Well, he's elected in 30. He takes office in 1931. He, By the way, we should say that he himself is the product of U.S. intervention on the island. Uh, the U.S. How so? Well, the United States intervened in Haiti in 1915 and in, and in the Dominican Republic in 1916 and took over the entire island and established a military government. Why? For a variety of reasons, but largely because of economic and geopolitical interests. Remember, this is during World War One, and okay. Haiti and the DR are literally smack in the middle of the of the Caribbean. Right, so right. the location itself, the the larger Antilles themselves have always been geopolitically important in terms of the exactly. physical location. Right, right. Um, but also the uh, U.S. investments, the interests of U.S. investors on on the island. Um, in large measure account for the military intervention. Uh, long story short, the Marines occupied and a U.S. military governor ruled Santo Domingo from 1916 to 1924 and Haiti from 1915 to 1934. So eight years on one side, 20 years almost on the other side. And the outcome of both of those invasions mm-hmm. and occupations, those are real invasions and occupations, right? Not the, not the Haitian one in the 100 years before that, right, um, right. was essentially the establishment of a dictatorship on both sides. And in, and on the, the Dominican side, it was Trujillo, yeah. who uh, was literally cultivated and trained by the U.S. Marines and put into power, essentially. And um, But Trujillo himself, who not surprisingly, like many Dominicans, is actually descended from Haitians on w- one side of his family. Is he? Yes, he hmm. is. Chevalier is one of his that. surnames. As really? are many Dominicans, because this is the thing. But this is one small island, and we actually have a lot of uh, intermixture and kinship and, and family formation, most often in the border regions, as is the case in any countries that share two borders, right? Exactly. Um, but also, you know, into the interiors. Um, in any case, he um, was a man of suspect racial ancestry in the eyes of the Dominican oligarchy and the elite. And some historians have argued that the motivation for him to engineer the massacre was to finally um, really bring along the support of the Hispanic, Hispanophile Dominican elites who uh, because of questions of class, because of questions of color, because of questions of notions of, you know, puredad de sangre and gran familias, weren't really embracing Trujillo. They were accepting Trujillo and his power, but they weren't incorporating him, right? The similar thing happens right, with Batista right. in Cuba, yeah. right? Uh, so the massacre was initiated... Uh, not coincidentally, to begin with El Día de la Raza, El Día de la Hispanidad, which is Hispanic Heritage Month, essentially, throughout Latin America, and began uh, that weekend in mid-October in 1937, went on for 
about three weeks, four weeks actively, and uh, it was primarily, although not exclusively, undertaken by Dominican military forces who used machetes, what we call colines mm -hmm. in Santo Domingo, as well as household and farming implements of various kinds, stones, sticks, etc., to hack or beat to death for the most part, although there were also mass shootings and drownings. Primarily women and children. 85% of the victims over the course of the four weeks were women and children. And that was largely due to the fact that um, Haitian and Dominican Haitian men were concentrated in the sugarcane plantations mm -hmm. in the Bates. Mm -hmm. And the owners of those plantations, who were primarily U.S. corporations, mm -hmm. as well as, again, some elite nationals, mm -hmm. um, had been advised in advance that the massacre was coming. And so they kept their workers inside the plantation walls. And it was largely women who were engaged in domestic work, housekeepers, uh, lavanderas, marchantas, um, market women, etc., and their children who were the targets of this very explicitly genocidal massacre that occurred. And did, did he have in mind to have like an ethnic it absolutely that, was that. The idea was to uh, extirpate blackness from the country, which is why it was um, a gesture, a, a strategy to affirm his commitment to the project of white supremacy uh, and align himself more fully with the oligarchical elites mm -hmm. of the country. Um, so... Uh, also, uh, the part of the massacre, well, as you mentioned, it killed um, thousands of uh, people, mainly women and children. But did he also, um, well, he, he was in power for decades, right? 30 years. 30, 30 years. years. So let me just say one yeah, other thing, that yeah. the massacre is called El Corte, not coincidentally, because El Corte is the period of the year when you're doing the sugarcane harvest, so you're coltando yeah, la caña. Yeah. It was also a way of cutting the root, literally, of... Haitian uh, uh, reproduction in the Dominican Republic. Yeah. Um, and one of the strategies that was used, which is part of what makes it so pernicious, uh, was that the people who were suspected suspected of being either actually Haitian immigrants or migrants or of Haitian ancestry were asked to pronounce the word perejil, parsley, mm -hmm. because very often Creole speakers uh, don't roll their R's the way Spanish speakers do. Mm -hmm. So very often someone's life literally hung on the balance based on how they pronounce their R. Are so you saying that if you couldn't pronounce your R... You were likely to be, be slaughtered in that oh, instance. Yes. So it's often called the Perejil Massacre, and Masacre de Perejil. Um, and the anniversary of it just passed actually a few weeks ago. So, mm. And the idea really was, and the fact that it was women and children was not coincidental, apart from the question of mano de obra being protected. Women and children are the future, right? Women Excellent. literally incubate future generations, right, and right. children are the future generations. So the idea was to... Cut from the root. You know, cut that. from oh, the root, good. exactly. Oh, wow. We are <laughs> talking with Geneta Candelario, Professor of Sociology and Latin America and Latino Studies at Smith Colleges, and we're talking Smith College, and we're talking about the um, origins and the situation of the immigrants from Haiti in the Dominican Republic. Now, I imagine that Trujillo being uh, three decades in power, he must have influenced tremendously. Uh, 
in all these spheres of society, school, politics, um, created a, yeah, a sentiment of anti-Haitianism. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's hard for us to imagine, especially in this 21st century moment where we have social media literally in our pockets, but right. to, to imagine ourselves into a situation such as, for example, the situation my mother grew up in from 1930 to 1960, where the society was literally completely closed off from the rest of the world. Of, of about 4 million or so Dominicans, only 4,000 were outside of the island. So think about that for a minute. Right, the ninety-nine point five percent of the population was on the island, so it wasn't as if people who were outside the island could bring information to the island, for example. And the vast majority of the f four to ten thousand or so people who were Dominicans off the island, a good number of those were either functionaries of the regime, or were exiles. So you had essentially two classes of, of off-island Dominicans, of Dominicans in the diaspora. Everybody else was in this island that it wasn't even a golden cage. It was a box because every form of media from radio, television, even the lyrics to merengue songs were completely controlled and censored by the Trujillato mm. and its operatives. Mm -hmm. There was one newspaper, El Listing Diario, uh, excuse me, El Caribe, because in fact, that's why my mother left the country. She was a sales agent for the Caribe and mm. she made a misstep in the eyes of the regime and right. she was... And La Lista, and so uh -huh. it was either leave yeah. or not come home one day. So, um, so all the media was controlled by the state. The school system was entirely controlled by the state. Um, domestic workers. I mean, this, the regime had even established una escuela de ciencia doméstica, mm -hmm. where they literally trained not women to be not only housekeepers but essentially spies to report on what was happening inside people's homes. <laughs> Back to the <laughs> regime, because you could not speak a mm. word of opposition to the regime without seriously risking your health and the health of your family. Era un sanguinario, como decimos. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, under his um, government dictatorship, generations then grew with this absolutely. sentiment. Right, absolutely, with this idea of themselves as being Hispanic, Catholic, and white, and in fact, the most Hispanic, Catholic, and white, and therefore, by definition, completely different from Haitians, right, who were black, voodoo practitioners, and uh, francophone, you mm -hmm. know, French as mm -hmm. opposed to, and not only that, but were always framed as a, a, a threat, right, an, an invading threat, a stealth Pacific invading force right. that would undermine the well-being of the of the body politic, literally, right? right. Um, and so that kind of ideology, right? If it's being delivered to you in every possible realm of your life, as you say, across generations, even the evidence in the mirror notwithstanding, <laughs> even when one looks at oneself in the mirror and says, "Well, I don't actually look that different from, you know, my neighbor over here." Um, the belief system becomes that that we are fundamentally organically different, right. right? And not only that, but that person and and their people are a threat to me and mine, right? That's the ideology that gets delivered in every possible way. Even if you are as a Dominican um, dark skin, you still think that you're better than a black Haitian. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. That was the ideology. That is the ideology. And it's it's like any ideology, it's not rational or reasonable. Exactly. Now, here's the other side. It's also not total because, as is always the case, there were and there continue to be people, not only individual but collectives, that reject and refuse and resist that ideology, that uh, recognize themselves to be black, that embrace negritude movements of various mm-hmm. kinds, mm-hmm. that uh, celebrate and work really hard to actually narrate and and make public the real history based on actual archival uh, as well as oral historical information mm-hmm. as opposed to you know the fantasy that we get sold right right let's move now to Balaguer he comes now comes Balaguer he's mm-hmm. just as bad as Trujillo he's or worse worse How worse could that because be? Balaguer was an intellectual <laughs> so ah. Balaguer was the the intellectual architect of anti-Aitianismo under Trujillo he was Trujillo's right hand man oh. And uh, he survives the assassination of Trujillo. And not only does he survive, but he actually gets installed into power with oh. the support of the United States oh. <laughs> in 1966. Jeez. And Right, and undertakes what's called the, the 12 years, los 12 años de Balaguer. So 12 years plus 30 from Trujillo, gosh, it's yeah. 42 years under the influence. It's mm-hmm. like a brainwashing of, uh, of all these generations of people. No wonder, no wonder it's... Mm-hmm so difficult for people even now currently to really, to, to really change their mentality. Let's move forward now uh, because time is and I'm just moving so fast and let me remind our listeners we are having a great conversation here with Gineta Candelario. She's a professor of sociology and Latin America and Latino studies at Smith College and we're talking about the situation of the immigrants from Haiti in the Dominican Republic and this is this is Tertulia. You are in tuned to WFCR New England Public Radio 88.5 FM. Mm-hmm. Let's move forward now uh, to the situation that was in the news not too long ago. Mm-hmm. Now, here we have all these uh, uh, decretos saying that mm-hmm. the, the immigrants from Haiti, they have to go back to the country. And not only that, what happens to the people that are that were born in yeah, the Dominican do. Republic well, you of have, Haitian descent. Right. Well, you have two problems, right? One is that that the the most vulnerable population, well, okay, you have two problems. One is folks who are actually Dominican by birth. Right. The Dominican Constitution, like many constitutions, has the principle of birthright citizenship, that if you're born in the territory, then you're entitled to citizenship. Right. The the folks that we are largely talking about, the folks who have brought lawsuits to the Inter-American Human Rights Court, uh, beginning, for example, with the 2005 case of Jan and Bosico against the Dominican Republic, are Dominicans of Haitian descent. In the Jan and Bosico case, which is the 2005 case, We're talking about the third generation, the the two daughters, uh, Delsa Young, who was 10, and Violeta Bosico, who was 12, who were born in the Dominican Republic, whose mothers were born in the Dominican Republic. So it's their grandparents who were possibly migrants from Haiti. Uh, Both the mothers and the children were denied their citizenship, were denied, first of all, documentation as having been born. So they weren't given their birth certificates or when they were issued birth certificates, the um, the administrative office that handles issuing copies of the birth certificates refused to give 
the mothers copies of their daughters' birth certificates, uh-huh. which they needed in order to enroll the girls into school. Right. The girls were expelled from school. So, oh. so this has multiple human rights implications. Uh, the, the denial of citizenship under birthright principles, the denial of education, education to the children, and so on and so forth. And that actually is kind of at the crux of all this, right? The attempt to deny access to all the rights and benefits of citizenship to Dominicans. These are Dominicans. These are not immigrants. These right. are people who were born in, in the Dominican Republic, right. second yeah. and third generation sometimes. Uh, and then you have also the problem of undocumented Haitian immigrants and or migra- migrant workers who are documented neither by the Haitian state, which is also a problematic corrupt state, very similar to the ways that the Dominican Republic is corrupt and problematic, um, but also are denied documents on the Dominican side at the point of entry, whether or not they come uh, administratively correct or informally. Mm -hmm. Many of these Haitian immigrants and migrants were actually recruited by the state as cane workers, mm. for example, under Balaguer, which is the irony of ironies, right? Mm-hmm. The the sugarcane industry was nationalized, a large part of it, not, not entirely, but a large part of it in the 1970s. And Balaguer and the president of Haiti, different uh, uh, Duvalier, mm-hmm. uh, made tratados, mm-hmm. agreements, to literally ship truckloads, busloads of Haitian cane cutters from Haiti to the Dominican Republic, uh, where essentially they did the work that funded the large, largest part of the gross national product, the gross domestic product, which is sugarcane for exportation. Mm-hmm. Um, some of these men were migrants and they went back and forth, but many stayed and they made the Dominican Republic their home. But they came as recruited laborers. So if they lacked documents, they lacked them because the Dominican government refused to provide them, right? Uh, yes. So these were not people stealing their way, you know. So uh, they, they were forced. They were brought by force to work as well, laborers for sugar cane. Yeah. Right, they were recruited. And then once recruited, they were put into the most vulnerable positions imaginable. And there's a, a lot of research that's been done already by Amnesty International, mm-hmm. International Human Rights Watch, Observatorio de Migración en el Caribe, etc., really documenting how miserable and exploitative the conditions mm. on the sugarcane plantations were and continue to be, actually. Um, and then the second thing that happens, which I think is is really clear in this situation, is that while sugarcane continues to, to be a critical part of the Dominican economy, a lot of Haitian labor and Dominican Haitian labor, right? So now we're talking Dominicans of Haitian descent. It's kind of like saying Latinos in the U.S., right? So there's the immigrant, and then there are their children who are born here. So if I were to say Latino labor, I might mean both, the, the parent and the child. So a lot of Haitian and Dominican Haitian labor, uh, while it's sugarcane, but it's also in the construction industry, it's in the tourist industry, and it's in the domestic uh, labor industries. So... Haitian and Dominican Haitian workers are literally doing the work that produces the infrastructure for the Dominican economy, such as it is, okay? Uh, And to then imagine that these folks in particular are being denied their rights as citizens, just even in terms of the formal rights of recognition, and then more importantly, right to access things like education and or healthcare, which are the primary resources that any population needs to survive and then possibly thrive, is an outrage. It's an outrage on a moral level and it's an outrage on a political level. 
is there a role at all in this uh, situation of the uh, great um, monetary organizations, international organizations? Uh, do, is there a role for them in this? There is one of the one of the, the one of the things that accounts for why the average Dominican, let's say, would go along with the clearly racist, anti-Haitianist human rights violations of the change in the Constitution of 2010, the Sentencia of 2013, and then the kind of stoking of nationalist, of nationalist sentiment that has mm -hmm. been happening mm -hmm. since then, which, you know, most recently, for example, a young man, a 19-year-old man was lynched in Santiago, was hung from a tree in a public park, a, a Haitian young man, a boot cleaner, and this was clearly a racially motivated lynching. I mean, what what have we come to where this is happening? And so you ask yourself, well, why would the average Dominican person go along with this or allow this or, or uh, you know, wave those flags? And I think part of the problem is, of course, obviously anti-Haitianist ideology, but I think it's also a problem that, that dates back to the IMF and structural adjustment programs and the extreme privatization of Dominican uh, culture and society. The, the government and the uh, governing authorities have completely evacuated any responsibility for providing a public infrastructure for the country whether it's roads or security or water that's drinkable or electricity, school, education, or health care, any of the things that are kind of basic infrastructure for collective living are essentially bankrupt in Santo Domingo, in the Dominican Republic. And what's grown up alongside it, and that's all a, a product of structural adjustment programs dating back to the eight, 1980s with the IMF, okay? And actually between Balaguer periods, because Balaguer is all somewhere in this story too. Um, and so what we have now is a situation where Dominicans on the island are relying either on remesas, remittances, that account for anywhere from 40% to 50% of the gross domestic product of the country. In other words, people who are in diaspora, we have 20% now of our population is not on the island. It's here in mm -hmm. the United States. 20%. 20%. That's, so if you wrap your mind around that number for a moment, that most a large number of Dominicans can't live in their own country because of circumstances on the island and are living in the United States or in Europe and are working to send money back. By the way, largely women do that, mm -hmm. send money back home to support their families. The other large part of the, the gross domestic part comes from a, a private infrastructure that, that operates alongside what should be a public infrastructure. So in, in the average middle class home, the electricity is provided not by the sede, which is the you know public uh, electricity provision mechanism, but by inversores, by uh, generators. By private companies. By, no, not even private not companies. Even pri a private generator. Battery operated, solar operated, or diesel operated, but you have your own generator in your home. Your water, you're not getting from public water. Mm. You have una cisterna, a cistern, or a tinaco, a thing on your roof that catches rainwater. You provide, you have your own uh, your, service of utilities? You have your own you'd private utilities. Every private, middle class oh. or above household has private utilities that oh, operate oh. alongside mm -hmm. 
the public system, supposedly. Why is that? Is that that the government, the public system, does not provide it? It does oh. not provide it. You have, in, in Santo Domingo, mm. apagones, blackouts, yeah. are a daily regular occurrence. So you will go 16 hours a day without public electricity provision, which is why those who can provide their own electricity privately. Mm. Water, likewise. The water is not potable. There has never been drinkable water in the, in the last 50 years. So you have your own private cistern or you you have to drink bottled water. Uh, security. There's no real policing force to speak of that's going to serve and protect. It, it operates as a military that, that does other kinds of regressive work. If you want to protect your home, you have a private guard. School. There's escuelas, which is the public school system, yeah. which, again, are insufficient and uh, don't have electricity, don't have enough teachers, don't have enough hours, etc. And only working class or poor people put their kids in those schools. Mm. And then you have colegios, which is a private school system where the vast majority of those who have the resources put their children, beginning in kindergarten and all the way to through uh, university. Healthcare. There is the public hospital, and then there are clinicas and farmacias that actually provide the majority of care, for, again, for people with, with resources. So it is an extreme privatization situation, which means that the average person is under tremendous economic duress because if you're paying privately for everything, mm. when the media, when your elected officials, when the culture at large tells you part of the reason that you are under this kind of financial duress is because of that Haitian person over there. It's because they're, they're stealing in. It's, it's a specific invasion. They are taking resources from us. We're already stretched to the max. It's very similar to the nativist and xenophobic discourse that's you know circulating here in the U.S. It really is no different, except that Dominicans are even more taxed, literally, than, than Americans are. Okay. <laughs> I had no idea that's how it, So um, let's close our, our conversation with uh, just a quick uh, update as to what is the situation right now that, uh, for the immigrants? Uh, well, what we have is a couple of things. One is the Plan Nacional de Regulación de Extranjeros, which is on the one hand trying to, which basically recognize that the citizenship rights and the documents of a large number of people, 200 plus thousand people, were erroneously unjustly taken from. And that, by the way, was largely due to international pressure. So I do want to make a plug mm -hmm. for this. Mm -hmm. um, if you're not sure about whether or not your calls to your senators or whether your participation in Amnesty International or Human Rights Watch is having an effect, it is. It does have an effect. The Dominican Republic uh, is very sensitive to, to public relations and to the view from abroad and to those mm -hmm. kinds of pressures. And um, because of that, some of what could be otherwise even worse human rights violation has been somewhat contained, right? That sense of literally watching, of observing right, right. what's going on. Exactly. So some folks have gotten identification and documentation papers. Um, other folks have been at least officially put into a process of beginning to be documented. We still have a serious crisis where people were denationalized de facto, so they their citizenship rights were retroactively stripped of them, and that's really where the pressure needs to continue to be put. Uh, because if you could just imagine for yourself, 
you you know someone whose parents maybe were born elsewhere or whose grandparents were born elsewhere. So if you picture for a moment, we're in the Pioneer Valley. We have immigrants here from, from Poland, from French Canada, from Ireland, from England, as well as, of course, Latinos of various nationalities, Italians, and so forth. Imagine the grandparents who were the immigrants that now that their grandchildren are no longer U.S. citizens, that you have been told right. that retroactively, right. retroactively you're no longer right. citizens. Yeah. Or even worse, great-grandparents, because the Dominican case, it goes back to 1929. So if you think about your own family's genealogy and you, you ask yourself, were my ancestors here in 1929? If they weren't, or if they were, well, how do I prove it? Do I have the documentation to show? Because if I don't, I'm going to be deported. Right or I don't have the citizenship rights that I thought I had, mm -hmm. this is a situation that we have in Santo Domingo right now. So uh, staying attuned to that and putting pressure on that fact, I think is really critical. Very good. Thank you so much for this great information, Ginetta. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you, Raquel, for the invitation. Thank you very much. My guest tonight was Ginetta Candelario, Professor of Sociology and Latin America and Latino Studies at Smith College.